It's Wednesday, June 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The U.S. was able to recover a portion of the money paid out in the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline. The FBI was able to seize $2.3 million of the $4.4 million that was paid to the Russian hacker group DarkSide. While some details are being kept secret by the feds, they were able to access the private key to DarkSide's digital Bitcoin wallet. Kevin Collier, reporter at NBC News, joins us for the latest twist in this ransomware attack. Next, the FDA has approved a new drug that could help all those that suffer from Alzheimer's disease. This is the first new Alzheimer's drug approved in almost 20 years and targets proteins called amyloids that are thought to play a part in cognitive decline. More studies on its effectiveness will continue to be done and the treatment is very expensive, coming in at over $50,000 a year. Robert Langrith, science and health reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for more. Finally, Amazon is currently sharing your internet connection with your neighbors, and they didn't even give you a chance to opt out. Using Amazon-connected devices such as Echo smart speakers and Ring cameras, they launched a new kind of wireless network called Sidewalk. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist for the Washington Post, joins us for how to turn off the Sidewalk network on your devices. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I made the decision to pay, and I made the decision to keep the information about the payment as confidential as possible. It was the hardest decision I made in my 39 years in the energy industry, and I know how critical our pipeline is to the country, and I put the interests of the country first. Joining us now is Kevin Collier, reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about this uh, ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline. We got some interesting information out of the Department of Justice and the FBI is saying they were able to recover some of that ransom that they had paid. I think it was $4.4 million that they paid to the dark side ransomware gang. They were able to recover about $2.3 million of that. Kevin, how did they do this? This is a tactic that is not something that we have been aware of in any of the number of kind of open and on that the FBI and uh, Secret Service have opened up into ransomware gangs. So there are so many victims. There have been more than a thousand ransomware attacks this year alone. That's just ones we know about. You know, the number is probably three times that size. And this is a new tactic that we're learning about. And the FBI is very specific about what it's saying. And I had a call with uh, a special agent in charge that oversaw this yesterday. And they're being vague on purpose because they don't want to tip off the hackers how exactly they were able to seize this. My understanding was that, you know, a lot of times when these things happen, they're moving the money constantly, so you can't keep tracking it. But this amount of money was sitting there for some time. They were able to find it and get in that way. So I guess the other part of the question is, you know, how did they get that password, that private key? And that's kind of one of the big mysteries right now. The kind of million dollar question here is, did the hackers do something incredibly stupid where they were just hosting it on a, you know, some sort of U.S. service and let the FBI just easily get a warrant and just take it over? Or was it something more complicated, more technically adept that somehow, you know, hacked something more fundamental to the Internet infrastructure? And like I said, they're being deliberately vague. I mean, did they have help from other agencies, maybe ones better known for technical prowess? That we don't know either. One of the other things that worked in their favor is that a lot of the Internet infrastructure is based in the United States. They were mm-hmm. able to get warrants surrounding this. I mean, they don't know if people in the cryptocurrency companies or not helped the FBI, but this was kind of one of the things that were working in their favor. 
you know, there's a lot of speculation early on that it was Coinbase. Coinbase said, no, no, we were not a part of this. But as a general rule, this is a massive advantage the United States has over the rest of the world in that so much of the dominant internet infrastructure comes from Silicon Valley, you know, is, is in physically located in the United States. And, you know, the United States government, when it wants to flex its muscles, often is able to, you know, have substantial power that way. The Colonial Pipeline CEO, his name is Joseph Blunt, he was speaking before a Senate hearing and kind of defended, explained his actions on on why he paid the ransom initially. You know, he said, I thought it would just be best for the country to get this done quickly. They paid the ransom. Uh, The key that they gave them to recover their data was working so slow that they ended up using their own backup systems to restore everything Mm -hmm. to the pipeline. But what else did he say in that Senate hearing uh, about why he paid this ransom? Well, you know, he's framed this as, you know, this is a a, a national security issue. I mean, it's true. You know, Americans were freaking out the possibility of not having, you know, quite as much fuel, (laughs) you know, gas at down. But he defended this as he didn't know a ton about ransomware. He had not planned uh, a ransomware specific scenario for the company. And so he took every option he could right off the table. If, you know, a lot of ransomware experts will tell you, it can often be easier to use the FBI's tools, uh, CISA, you know, Department of Homeland Security's defensive agency's uh, tools, where a lot of private companies have decryptor tools that are more effective for most ransomware strains than the ones that, that the ransomware gangs will sell to you. And DarkSide in particular was kind of infamous for having a very slow decryptor. So if he hit the brakes a little bit and then talked to some experts before paying, he would have been able to do this more quickly to begin with. Right. You know, the FBI obviously was making the call to, hey, this is great. We are able to do this. But they made the plea for other companies or whoever else gets attacked by this to come to them so they can help, you know, work these tools. Maybe it won't work for everybody, but at least they can help because before this, the prevailing line was don't pay the ransom, all that jazz. But, you know, so they're they're asking for people to come forward when they get hacked. We really are seeing a big escalation in U.S. response to ransomware. I, you know, I've been this for, for several years, and it has just steadily increased. There have been so, you know, been so many hospitals, so many schools, so many cities, police departments, manufacturing companies, so many targets have been hit. And they've recently escalated or elevated the threat to the same kind of equivalent status as terrorism has been. And we're seeing a substantially stronger response from the U.S. government. Kevin Collier, reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Take care. We're going to approve the drug because it's clearly shown to remove plaque, this amyloid plaque, these bad proteins that are in the brain of Alzheimer's patients. And we think that's enough to show that it is a reasonable likelihood that this will lead to delays in cognitive decline over time. Joining us now is Robert Langrith, science and health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Thank you. wanted to talk about this uh, new Alzheimer treatment that has been approved by the FDA. A lot of people are saying it's a game changer. A lot of people on the other side of it saying maybe not so much. So uh, we have this new uh, treatment out there. It's very expensive. And the company that produced this uh, had, had a couple failures in clinical trials with this. It got revived and ended up making through the approval. So, Robert, tell us a little bit about this new drug. So this is likely to be one of the more controversial drug approvals in recent FDA history. 
Drug companies have been trying to make drugs that would do something to slow Alzheimer's disease for many, many years. There's been failure after failure after failure. And just a couple of years ago, this drug called aducanumab looked like it was the latest failure. Biogen, the company that just got approval yesterday, they actually said early in 2019 they were going to shut their major trials down because they'd done an analysis and it looked like, hey, it wasn't going to work at all. And then eight months later, they revived the drug. They said they, some more data had rolled in, and it looked like maybe one of the trials worked after all. And that kind of shocked everyone. And ever since then, it's been a very controversial debate. Uh, the FDA first took a positive stance back last November, and then the FDA advisors uh, reviewed the drug. This is a panel of independent advisors, and the advisors nearly unanimously ruled that the company hadn't proven that the drug was effective in slowing cognitive decline from the disease. That just hadn't been proven because of the contradictory results. That kind of uh, put things up at an impasse and made it for a very complicated situation. And what the FDA basically ended up doing uh, was they didn't even rule on whether the drug cognitive decline. That's basically not proven. They kind of punched on that issue and they said, we're going to approve the drug because it's clearly shown to remove plaque, this amyloid plaque, these bad proteins that are in the brain of Alzheimer's patients. And we think that's enough to show that it is a reasonable likelihood that this will lead to delays in cognitive decline over time. But Biogen, you can go connect another, another study and try to prove it in the future. So they kind of punted proving whether it slows cognitive decline off in the future and approved it for now. So in some of the trials that they had, it might have slowed patients' decline by about 22%. And as you mentioned, you know, it removes this protein called amyloid. And that's kind of where the other part of the discussion is, is there's people on both sides and how much that plays a part in the cognitive decline. Is that the sole cause, the buildup of these amyloids, or, or is it not? And that's kind of where the FDA said, hey, well, it helps reduce some of that. You know, it's part of the discussion. Let's go ahead and approve it. So basically, there are two big trials. One slowed that it, it didn't show that it slowed cognitive decline at all, it just failed. And the second one showed that maybe it slows it at a high, if you use a high dose, by 22% over 18 months. That's a very modest slowing of decline. I mean, you're, you're still at the best case scenario, you're still declining steadily, just maybe not quite as much. But what it does do, what there's no debate over that it definitely does. It does remove this amyloid plaque from the brain. That's its mechanism. They clearly showed that it did that. The problem is that the correlation between cognitive decline and uh, amyloid levels is, you know, murky at best. And there's tremendous controversy in Alzheimer's field over, you know, is this a major amyloid, a major cause of the disease, or is it just sort of a minor contributor? And are other things more important? So it's been a debate that's been raging for years. Uh, there's people on both sides. Everything's very, very polarized. And the FDA just essentially put its thumbs on one side of the scale and said, you know, essentially, we, we believe that amyloid lowering is going to have an effect. Tell me a little bit about the cost, because it has a very high cost, but it's not just the cost of the drug. It's also the cost of brain scans and and all sorts of other associations with it that really drive up the price on this. Biogen is pricing at a cost of a list price of about $56,000 per year per patient. Now, really, that's like as much as five times as much as some analysts thought it would cost. And that's because, you know, there's a lot of people with Alzheimer's, at uh, millions, and usually drugs are such big populations, you know, even expensive biotech ones, you know, that have to be injected, they haven't had such high prices. So this came in way higher. And, and, and if you just do the simple math, there's perhaps a million people or more in the U.S. that would theoretically be eligible for this drug. And if like all those people really got this drug and no one thinks they will. But if that happened, you know, the sales would be 50 billion. And that's just the start of the cost, right? So this is an infused drug. That means you have to come in every four weeks to get your infusion. There's a cost for the doctors or nurses doing the infusion. You'll probably need some kind of exotic brain PET scan before you get the drug to verify that you do have a lot of amyloid built up in your brain because some people with dementia or cognitive loss don't have that. 
And then even after you start on the drug, you'll need brain MRI scans to watch for side effects. There's all sorts of ancillary care that will even further add to the cost. This is absolutely going to be a very expensive treatment. Are there any specific markers that people have to meet to qualify to use this drug? Because what I was reading, it says that, you know, it's, it's not just for early stage sufferers, but they're basically leaving it up to the doctors to decide who can get this type of treatment. That's exactly what was another thing that was very interesting and surprising to people is that in the label and the kind of official FDA prescribing instructions, the FDA let the company keep it quite broad. And it doesn't, even though they mostly only study very early stage patients, the official indication, the official label just says, you know, it's for treatment of Alzheimer's disease, period. And they're letting the doctors and insurance companies essentially figure out who should qualify for this. Robert Langrith, science and health reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Amazon is building a nationwide network and getting us to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, we literally are paying for it. We're buying these devices, installing them in our homes, and giving them access to our internet connections. Joining us now is Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jeffrey. You bet. Amazon is sharing your internet connection with your neighbors. They have this, uh, if you have a an Amazon Echo or a Ring camera, any, any type of Amazon connected device, they're making a new kind of wireless network called the Sidewalk. And it shares a, a little portion of your internet connection with your neighbor's devices. This helps kind of them to make sort of a mesh network. They say it's an effort to make their products work better for the consumers, but there was never an opt-in situation for this. Uh, they turned it on on Tuesday. So if you didn't know about it, you're already sharing that connection there. Jeff, tell us a little bit more about this, and, and then eventually we'll get to how to turn it off. This fits in a tradition of Silicon Valley giant tech companies sort of deciding to make changes to do things with our data or with our technology and then only giving us the option to opt out of it later rather than getting our permission before we go in. Now, the, the premise of Sidewalk is a little bit kind of hard to understand, but let me see if I can break it down. So lots of people, more and more Americans, are getting smart home devices. I'm talking like both smart speakers, but also the lights or the, or the thermostat or you name it, or the security systems like the doorbells, all that kind of stuff. And Amazon is one of the biggest makers of these kinds of devices and also one of the biggest sellers. And so it's saying like, look, a lot of people have trouble setting up these devices because maybe their home Wi-Fi network doesn't stretch far enough or, you know, their house is just too big to cover all that space. So the idea with Sidewalk is Amazon wants to cover American cities and also suburbs with another kind of network. It's not like Wi-Fi. It's like much lower bandwidth, much less data goes through it, but it can travel much further. So with the Sidewalk network, for example, a single Amazon Echo device, one of those speakers, can extend a wireless network to up to like half a mile away. So imagine that, like a single device is going to be sharing an internet connection with just a whole neighborhood of people. So Amazon's argument for this is like, look, by you like lending a hand a little bit, you're going to make sure that everybody in your neighborhood can have a cool smart home. One of the arguments they say, too, is uh, let's say there's a Wi-Fi outage at your house with your ring camera or something like that. You know, if it's connected to this network, it'll still work. It'll still activate because it's connected to this sidewalk network. So in that sense, I guess it kind of kind of makes sense. But as you mentioned, the whole uh, not allowing you to opt out of this thing is kind of an issue. And you may be thinking, hey, well, I have a, an older device or something. The connectivity for these things go back to at least 2018 in some of the Amazon Echo smart speakers. 
That's right. So they've been putting the technology to enable sidewalk into some of these devices going back to 2018. On those early devices, it was just using kind of a Bluetooth technology. But in the newer ones, they've got this kind of long range uh, wireless that can really stretch really far. And look, there are plenty of good uses for this technology, as we were saying. But the problem is Amazon is once again not answering important questions about how far this will go. So I asked them, okay, so now that you are going to have this nationwide network that you control, are you going to use it for your own business? Are you going to use it to track packages? Are you going to use it to track your drivers? Are you going to use it for your drones that you've talked about that you want to send around America? They wouldn't answer the question. Another thing we know this network is probably going to be used for is frankly to extend surveillance into corners of cities and communities where network just didn't reach before, right? So that's going to mean more surveillance, more cameras, more sensors, more everything. And that data, of course, always inevitably ends up with the police. So there's a big reason to think that if you participate in Sidewalk, you're actually helping Amazon build Big Brother. Two questions on this now. How much does it cost us? Because they're taking some of our internet stuff that we're paying for. And then security. Um, my understanding, they say that they have three layers of encryption, which I guess would make it pretty secure. But we've never dealt with this type of uh, side network working off of our Wi-Fi and all that. Exactly. Well, let's talk about security first. You got it exactly right. They say they've got a triple encrypted. Nobody's going to be able to break in. Some security folks I know have looked at it and they say they're impressed. But Nothing is foolproof. And this is a new kind of network that has not been tested at scale before, right? It's not been a high profile target. So we don't know if someone's going to be able to break into it. And if they do, they would then possibly get access to the data that's traveling over it, which could be stuff about people's homes. So there is a reason to be concerned about that. And yes, the other thing you pointed out, which I think is super key here is Amazon is building a nationwide network and getting us to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, we literally are paying for it. We're buying these devices, installing them in our homes, and giving them access to our internet connections that we pay Comcast or you know, Charter or whoever, $65 or more a month to get. Now, Amazon has put a max limit on the amount of data that Sidewalk will use in a month. That's 500 megabytes. That's only a portion of probably what you use at home over a month, but it's still something. And a lot of people have data caps on their internet plans. If you go over, you have to pay that overage, (laughs) not Amazon. All right. Now the good and bad news. The bad news is by the time you heard this already, it's been turned on. The good news is that it's fairly easy to turn off. You you know, most cases you just got to go in your settings, go around until you find a sidewalk and then you can turn that off. That's right. So Amazon did not ask your permission to turn it on, but you do have the ability to opt out. So to do that, first of all, you need to have one of these devices that works with Sidewalk. I've been hearing from some folks, okay, I went and I looked at my settings, but I didn't see it. That's because you don't have uh, one of these devices that's new enough. It really started with the 2018 devices. If you've got one of the original Echoes or something, it's fine. So if you have one of these newer devices, you go into the Alexa app, you find your way to settings, then account settings, and then inside there, you'll see Amazon Sidewalk. I've got a, a step-by-step uh, picture guide in my column in the Washington Post. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet, and stay safe out there. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.